Well, as Kevin mentioned, we're in a sermon series called Discipleship at the Core. And one of the things that we want to do in this month, in these weeks that we are focusing in this area, is uh, to have us think about uh, some of the discipleship steps that we are wanting to put in front of us uh, as a church to understand discipleship, maybe in a little bit more simplistic way, uh, but to have handles, tangible handles that we can grab onto. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to disciple others? And so these four steps that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about are things such as to create community. That's one of the reasons why even we have you stand up and shake hands and say hello and just greet one another. Is that we don't worship in isolation as we come here. We worship corporately and we come together and we create community. Uh, also, the idea of, of us experiencing and modeling Jesus' love. That, that we would know the love of Jesus and that we would model it to others in our interactions with each other. That we would train one another in obedience. And also that uh, we would serve others and proclaim the gospel. So these are some of the things that we are talking about. They're not, they're not new ideas. They're just maybe uh, simpler, more concise ways of talking about them when we think about discipleship. That we want us to be wrestling with and talking through and understanding uh, in, in, this, in our church as we go through the fall. Now the other part of it is that we, we think about our church in four different contexts or, or core ministries. Which is why this series is called... For a couple of reasons, discipleship at the core. And so as was already mentioned, Kevin said, like last Sunday we talked about family ministries. Uh, next week we're going to talk about missions. The week after small groups. Today we're going to talk about corporate worship. And, and so when we think about the church, when we think about Forest Grove Community Church, we want you to think about not just what happens here on a Sunday morning. That's one aspect. It's a really important aspect. But I think over the years in the history of the church, so often the Sunday morning has become the whole deal. Which is why often there are the worship wars and the preaching wars and what people like and don't like and those things because it all comes down to what happens on a Sunday morning. What we're saying is, no, no, Sunday morning is important, but it's not the whole deal. And there are also these other areas or these other contexts like missions, small groups, family ministries where discipleship happens and where we are the church. Okay, so today we're going to focus on this context of the corporate worship gathering. When we come together to worship corporately and to, and to worship our God and some of what that means. And so the way I'm approaching this is, is with this phrase or this title of holistic worship. And that's what we want to be challenged by this morning and think about this morning. And we'll see that in our text that we're going to look at today of holistic worship. And the word holistic simply means this, intimately interconnected parts that are only explicit, explicable by reference to the whole. Got that? That's confusing. But what it means is it means relating to or concerned with a complete system rather than just with individual parts. Or another way of putting it is just that, that uh, the whole is more than merely the sum of the parts. Meaning the parts, us as parts of the body, when we come together something happens that is unique and that is more than just the sum of each individual part. That when the Spirit of God is present, when the corporate body comes together... And that we see worship in a more holistic way, uh, beyond ourselves. And we see our neighbors, and we see those who are here and those who are not here. And, and we think of worship in that way, and we understand uh, worship even in ourselves a little bit broader, as we'll talk about today. That it uh, becomes integrated into our lives. We become integrated into the lives of others as well, too. So that's that integration, that, that holistic idea that I want us to think about today and be challenged uh, by today. Because often we think about worship in a really narrow sense, don't we? Uh, you talk to somebody and you talk about worship, often what they'll think about is, well, it's singing. 
Well, yeah, that's one thing that we do. And again, we'll see in our text today, and it is part of how we worship, but it's not the whole deal. There, there's so much more that we do and can do uh, than just simply singing. And yet, at the same time, we don't want to go so wide that we say, well, absolutely everything that we do in life is worship. And, and no matter what you do, when I tie my shoes, that that's worship. Well, no. It can get too broad as well. We can all to the glory of God, but there is a real intentionality of us pausing and worshiping God in different ways in our lives. And so in, even in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says this text, and, and many of you would be well familiar with this. It says, and so dear brothers and sisters, Paul is saying this, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that you will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. So Paul is talking about a broader view of worship, that, that to take our full bodies, all of our lives, and use more of who we are as intentional worship to God. And we'll talk some about what that looks like. So when we take the horizontal and we connect it to the vertical, to who God is. And, and uh, one of the things that I was thinking about, and some of us were even talking about this this week, and this idea that, you know, worship is, is actually that pause when we are involved in the horizontal and we pause and we acknowledge the vertical in terms of truly acknowledging who God is and worshiping Him in that way. And, and you've probably heard the studies and a lot of conversation around multitasking these days. And it's not just guys who can't multitask. It, the, the proof is in that nobody can multitask. You're always focusing on one thing or another, but... So sometimes we need to pause the horizontal and then just focus on the vertical. And there's that truth in that as we worship that we'll see in our text today and that we'll, we'll look at. So our text is going to be in First Chronicles chapter 16. And you can turn there and we'll read through some segments of that in, in just a minute. Um, but this text is a text of David. King David. Now I don't know what you know about David, but he was a complex man. An interesting man. Some of you will be very familiar with David. Some of you maybe didn't grow up in the church or you're new to the church. You're just thinking, okay, I've heard of this guy and I know a little bit about him. But, but let me tell you this. David started with very humble beginnings. He started as a shepherd boy, but he ended up becoming the king of Israel. David was a murderer and an adulterer. He was somebody who actually had an affair with another man's wife, and then he had that man killed in the front lines of his army. That he had authority. He was also a man who had a very repentant heart and understood and acknowledged his sin before God and came before God and repented and confessed and knew what that all meant. Which is why he was called a man after God's own heart. And why all the kings of Israel were so often compared to David later and they were held up in the light of who David was in comparison. And how were they in terms of in tune with God in comparison to King David? And yet he had a lot of baggage in his past. He had a lot of sin in his life. And yet he was one who understood what it meant to repent. And yet he was a passionate worshiper. He was a poet and he was a warrior. I mean, here was a guy who had a sword in his hand more than a pen. And yet we read the Psalms and we're going to look at some text today and even a song of praise that, that David wrote. And he was somebody who penned so many of the Psalms and he wrote and he worshipped. He was a poet. And he had this intimacy with God that is profound. And yet he had blood on his hands of countless men that he had killed in battle. The thing I want you to understand about this is that he was not a one-dimensional man. As so often in our society, men are kind of portrayed in a very one-dimensional way, very simplistic way. Uh, David was anything but that. He was a very complex man, as each man is, more than maybe we give ourselves credit for. 
But that was David, and that's where this text comes out of, and we'll see some of the ways that he worshipped. Before I go there, I just want to make a comment as I'm thinking about men, and even this week I've been thinking about men uh, for a variety of reasons. I spoke yesterday at the, the breakfast for men's breakfast that was here and had about 60 men there. And in preparation for that and even thinking about worship and this focus today, I've been thinking a lot about how men come to this topic of worship. And there's a book that many of you maybe are familiar with. It's called Why Men Hate Going to Church written by David Murrow, and I've been rereading some of that and just some of the insights that he has of, of some of the challenges that are there for men. Women seem to attract or are drawn to worship or are more naturally inclined towards worship in some of the things that we do. For a lot of you men, you struggle with that in a variety of ways. So I think David is a good model for us to look at today as you think about what it means uh, to worship. So as I said yesterday at this breakfast, we looked at some of the unique challenges uh, for men out of Psalm 101, another psalm written by David. But I think in the church, a lot of times we're led to believe that some of those things that maybe men are, you know, would maybe get them more interested in the church, uh, are not really part of discipleship, not really part of what it means to follow in God's way. Let me just list a few, okay? We're led to believe that, you know, sex, dancing, boldness, adventure, and risk are not part of the church. These are not part of discipleship, it's sort of what we're led to believe. Uh, not part of God's plan, you know. Uh, we're meant to be passive. We're supposed to be gentle. We're supposed to sing about love, be sensitive, be nurturing. Right? If you read Scripture, in its context, you read Scripture, you understand, you realize that, that sex, dancing, boldness, adventure, and risk are part of God's plan. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> in the right context, Scripture talks about that. And I, I think guys, when they look at that list, they go, I can say, well, all those things, except maybe the dancing part. Um, but for men, a lot of times when we come to Scripture or we talk about worship, it does become challenging. I mean, you put people in a room and you ask them to sing, and you put things up on a screen and you say, sing. Now, for a lot of guys, that right there is like a no-brainer, like that, that just stops you in your tracks. It's like, I don't sing. I've talked to many guys who struggle with that. Other guys are more inclined that way. Not, not such a challenge, but for, for others it is a challenge. And so we, we sing words about intimacy with God. We sing words about extravagant love. We sing words like that. But I think for a lot of guys, just really causes a struggle to worship. And then just add to that this whole idea of, you know, hands lifted high and praise towards God, right? Okay. And you think, okay, if I'm a man in spiritual battle, this is just way too vulnerable a posture. Why would I expose all my vulnerable spots if I'm in a battle? Okay, which is why most men, I mean, they worship like this. Protect the core, right? But it's true, which is why I think Timothy said, you know, I want men in worship everywhere to have their hands lifted high in holy worship. It is a posture of worship because it's a posture of vulnerability. It's a posture of giving all of yourselves to God, which again is something that I think most men struggle with. So I'm just saying this up front to say I acknowledge that, that as we come to this topic, for men there can be a lot of challenges for this topic uh, and a lot of obstacles, which again is why I think David is a great model for us. Turn to the text in Chronicles, in, in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16. You'll find it about a quarter way through the Bible, uh, after uh, 1 and 2 Kings, you come to 1 and 2 Chronicles, and it gives a chronicle or an ordering or an account of some of the life of Israel, the people of Israel, the kings of Israel. And in this section of scripture, it's talking about David. Again, David, the great warrior. 
the poet, the sensitive man, the brutal man, and all that he was as he teaches us how to worship. Now, to understand this text, you have to back up a little bit and go, uh, even in some preceding chapters, and understand that in the chapters that precede this, part of what is happening is that um, the Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem. David is the king of Israel at this time. He's been appointed, anointed king of Israel. The kingdom of Israel is a united kingdom at this point. It hasn't divided into the north and the south, which comes later. So this is one people group still, the people of God. And the Ark of the Covenant is this central aspect of worship that is being brought into the city of David, into the city of Jerusalem. So David is leading his people in this procession of worship with the very central object of worship, the Ark of the Covenant, which contained within it Aaron's staff, which contained within it uh, the, the, the tablets of stone that had the, the Ten Commandments of God on it, and which also contained in it some manna, which was God's provision for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so it had all this richness of meaning for the people of Israel as this Ark of the Covenant was carried with them as they journeyed through life in their calling of God. And if you remember when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle, which was this portable tent of meeting that they would set up. And it was this place of worship that Moses led in worship with God and met God face to face there. And now we're in this transition time when the temple in Jerusalem has not yet been built. But there is this Ark of the Covenant that is coming into the city as this focal point of worship. And the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the presence of God among his people. So it's a big deal. And David is leading this procession into the city of David, into Jerusalem, with the Ark of the Covenant and all that it means. And he's establishing their methods of corporate worship. And he's setting in motion a, a means and a way of, of worship for these people. And even that right there, it strikes me that, that the focus of worship does not change, that God is continually the focus of worship, but the means and methods of worship always change. Continually change. It changed for the people of Israel. It changes with every culture, every season, every time uh, of century that you go through the history of the church. The kinds of worship and the ways that people worship change. You go to different cities in this country, you will see different expressions of worship. You go to different churches in this city, you see different ways of worship. You go to different countries and cultures, and you see different ways and means and methods of worship. So those are applied in culture and in context and in time. What I want to do today is just look at some of this text and understand some of the principles of worship that come through from what David is doing and leading his people. So the first point I want to make is that worship involves the holiness of God. That the focal point of, of worship begins with the holiness of God. And we see that earlier if you look back actually at 1 Chronicles chapter 13 where the Ark of the Covenant was being moved by some of the people, and the oxen were pulling this cart that the Ark of the Covenant was on, and there was one man who actually, as the oxen stumbled, he put his hand out and steadied the Ark of the Covenant so that it wouldn't fall over, and because he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he was struck down dead immediately in that place. And you look at that story, you go, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what's with that? I mean, he's just sort of taking care of things, but... The point of that is, is that there was a way to worship, a way to handle the Ark of the Covenant that was established by God, that was about the holiness of God, and if you go outside of that, there are consequences to that. 
And so these people understood that there was a holiness to God that they didn't fully understand, but that there was a reverence and truly a fear of the Lord that came upon these people in terms of the way that they should worship. So David, he summons his priests and his Levites in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. He says this, he says that you are the elders of the Levite families, you must purify yourselves and all your fellow Levites, so you can bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. Because you Levites did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. So this first point, the thing I want you to understand that we see in this text, is that worship begins with the holiness of God and who He is. And a reverence for God in that way. Even in our children's ministry, and I checked with Maureen again this week just to make sure I, I understood that that was how we still approach it, and it's true. But even within children's ministry, there are three primary things that are taught to our children at the very youngest age. First of all, that, that God made you. First of all, that God created you uniquely, and that uh, He made the world, and that He has a purpose for you. Secondly, that God loves you and desires to have a relationship with you. And with the youngest age, it's referred this way, is that Jesus wants to be your friend. But then the third piece that is taught to all of our children is that God is holy. And as they get older, they're taught this more and more and more because it's only in this holiness of God that they can understand the reason for the cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that was given. So even in our children's ministry at the very youngest age, you want kids to understand that God is your friend, that God loves you, He created you. But you also want to understand that God is holy. And sometimes we, we forget some of that in our lives and in our worship. Second thing I want us to see uh, in this text in 15 and 16 is that worship involves a joyful noise. It involves a joyful, a joyful noise. First Chronicles 15, 28 says it this way, So all Israel brought the ark of the Lord's covenant with shouts of joy, blowing of rams, horns, trumpets, crashing of cymbals, and loud playing on the harps and lyres. There was noise to it. Now some of you love that, some of you don't love that. I get that. Sorry, it's right here in the text. It's biblical. Loud noise was part of their worship. Okay? And so this is how they came to worship, to praise this living God. Yes, God is holy and awesome, but they came to make a joyful noise. Today, uh, we have keyboards, drums, uh, brass, guitars, electronics that mixes, modifies, amplifies, all those kinds of things. But this truth that worship is meant to make a joyful noise before the Lord. Worship is whole body. Worship is whole body. We see that also in this text. At the end of chapter 15, it says, As the ark of the Lord's covenant entered the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, which is also David's wife, looked down from her window when he saw King David skipping about and laughing with joy. And she was filled with contempt for him. She was filled with contempt because he was doing something that was very unbecoming of the king. And here's David dancing and laughing and having uh, just this incredible worship experience before the Lord and before God's people. It's whole body. It's multi-sensory. And, and Brad has been so good at leading us to the church in, in different responses and, and tactile ways. And I know that, that Brad loves to learn in a tactile way. He's so sure that with our staff. And so different sensory. And even today you'll have opportunity of different ways to worship. That are our whole body. So often our worship just stays right here, up here in the head. Does it come down to our heart? Does it come out in our hands and our feet as it did for David? And if you go on and, uh, well, the second, the next point that I'll talk about is, is that worship is freedom. Also connects to the text that I just read. 
But this freedom that David had as an audience of one, he only cared about the audience of God. He had freedom to worship because he was more concerned about what God thinks of him than what others thought of him, including his wife. You go into the parallel passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says very similar language. It says, David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. And when his wife, Michal, saw him, she was ashamed and disgusted that a distinguished king would do this. He was leaping and dancing before the Lord with joy, skipping and laughing with joy. And she was filled with contempt for him because of how it would appear. And in 2 Samuel 6, 22, it says this. David said, he says, yes, I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated before my own eyes. They could worship with freedom. He didn't care what the people around him thought. He just cared about the audience of one, even when he was in community with others. The next point that we see is that worship is liturgy. Liturgy is just the movements and the decisions and the progression and the things, the components that we do in worship. The acts of worship that we do in the public space. There's order, structure, assignments in public worship. And again, always changing, often culturally uh, sensitive, culturally contextual in different ways and at different times. But every church has a liturgy. We do. There's an order to things of how you do things. So even as you read in verse 4 of chapter 16, it says, David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord, to invoke his blessings, to give thanks, and to praise the Lord, God of Israel. As you keep reading, you see the different leaders that he assigned to different responsibilities and different components of the worship and what it would look like. Worship is also about God's initiatives. It begins with God and what he has done. Not only this idea that God is holy, but it's that God is the one who has initiated. God is the one who has reached out to us and we respond to what he has done to the nations of the world. So worship is about God's initiatives. If you read through this incredible song of praise, so much of chapter 16 uh, is this David's song of praise in verse 7 and following. But it says, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his greatness, let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him, yes, sing his praises. Search for the Lord in his strength, continually seek him. Remember the Lord, the wonders he has performed, his miracles and the ruling. Remember his covenant forever, the commitment he made with a thousand generations. And on and on this text goes. And it teaches about God's initiatives, what God has done for the people of Israel and for the nations of the earth. And so it's this proclamation Worship is proclamation of what God has done throughout the ages and to the nations of the earth. And worship disciples us. I shared, I shared those discipleship steps right at the beginning and, and how corporate worship, when we come together to worship corporately in this setting, it is part of our discipleship. It's part of how we disciple one another. As you observe others in worship, you are disciples. As you express yourself in worship, you are discipling others. Worship also disciples us in the words that we sing. As so much theology is carried in the songs that we sing, proclaiming who God is and what he has done. And, and so often our music carries our theology in, in so many ways. And so it disciples us. And, and you read that, in, in, again, in this text. It says, let the whole earth sing to the Lord, in verse 23. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Publish his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things that he does. And it goes on and on and it says, 
Hear who God is. Worship the Lord in his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives from everlasting to everlasting. And so as we worship, we are disciples. As we worship, we understand more and more theology about God, about who God is and what he has done. So worship, and to do so corporately, is so important in our lives. But again, I want us to think broader. I want us to think beyond that. Because not only what we do here matters, we'll see in just a minute, but even as we leave from here, what we do matters as well. We need to think about how we worship in the context of others and how we worship in the context of our lives and the broader aspects of our lives. How does it affect our work? How does it affect our parenting? How does it affect our decision? Where do we just pause and give glory and acknowledge God in those moments of our day-to-day lives that it actually changes how you live? You know, last week I shared, we were talking about family ministries and this uh, generational discipleship that happens from generation to generation. I shared some of the story of my own family and, and coming from different places in Europe, in Prussia, Russia, and other places in that part of the world, and some of the persecution that happened there, and how my parents and grandparents came over, and so on. But the one story I'll share with you today that comes also as part of my family history to me is, a, is an act of worship that I have come to know the story from my grandpa. And so it was when he was in that region of the world, and uh, at that time, the Going into a lot of the details, there was these two armies, the White Army and the Red Army. And one of those armies took their rifles and they actually stored them in my grandpa's barn. And he knew that if he did anything, if those rifles were missing, obviously it would mean his life. So what does he do? So my grandpa takes every one of those rifles when the soldiers are gone and he puts them in his bench vice and he bends the barrels just two degrees. It makes every one of them absolutely useless puts them all back exactly where he found them, and so on. Now, was that an act of worship or an act of defiance? I don't know. I would like to think that it was an act of worship. Because of his faith, because of his convictions, because of his beliefs, because of who he believed God is, and that it's more important to fear God than to fear men, his own subtle little way of just, I think, significant way of worshiping God in that moment, I think in a very significant way. What are the choices that we make? What are the acts of faith and risk and boldness that we make that are part of our worship? How do we move from the horizontal to the vertical? The pause to acknowledge God and respond to what He has done. The last point I will make about all of the things, and there's more than this, I just pulled out about eight or nine, that are about worship in this text, is that worship is also about integrity. Worship is about integrity. If you read in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 16, verse 43, the very last verse in that text, it concludes it. I, I love the words that are said there. It says, Then all the people returned to their homes, and David turned and went home to bless his own family. Isn't that a great line? That's how he ended his worship. After David had led the people of Israel and led in a very public setting, now what he did is he turned and he went home and he blessed his own family family. In other words, what we do in, in our public lives, what we do in a public worship setting like this, needs to line up with our private lives. Is there consistency in those things? 
Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we talked a little bit about this idea of, of gap control. And that for every one of us, there's a gap in our lives between how we live in our private lives and maybe the persona that we put on our public lives. Or maybe for some of us, how we speak and how we teach in public and then how we live in private. And for every one of us, there is some measure of gap, but that we have to be involved in gap control in terms of keeping that gap fairly small. Because when that gap gets wider and wider and wider, pretty soon we start to feel like a complete fraud. And that's where so many people, they crash and burn because the gap has gotten so wide. And now thankfully, you need to know that by the grace of God, it is God's grace that covers that gap. We all live in that gap in, in some measure, in some way. We all have that. And it is only by the grace of God that that gap is covered. We are so thankful for that and we praise God. And that is partly and a huge part of why we praise God for that is the grace of Jesus Christ that is there for us at the cross. You turn in Colossians, uh, and I, there's so many texts that you can think about with this, but in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it talks about this. It says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. Is this truth that regardless of what gap is in our lives that we overcome at the cross, we come to Jesus repentant, confessing, just like David, with all the stuff in his life, with all the sin in his life, with all the rebellion in his life, and yet the consistency that he walked with as he managed that gap, as he came as a repentant follower of God. And God invites us to worship and do so in the very same way. So we need to know that our worship matters. We need to know that our corporate worship matters. Which is why even scripture uh, implores us to continue to keep meeting together. Don't stop going to church. Don't stop being in church. Don't stop just coming together in community. Because what you do in community matters. It is more than just the sum of the parts. There's a holistic nature to it that, that God honors and that he is glorified in when we meet together. And it's also so critical in our discipleship. And we think broader in how we worship. And that it would integrate more into the lives of others and also be broader in our own lives and integrate more into more and more areas and aspects of our lives. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for this text. We thank you for King David and for the abandon that he, that he worshipped with him. And Father, I pray that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that you would shape us more and more, that you would discipleship us, disciple us through our worship Lord that Father. And Father, that we would worship with more freedom. That audience of one, even though we're in a corporate setting together with others, Lord. And that we would worship you in spirit and in truth as you call us. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, has covered that gap that can be there in our lives and in our worship. And sometimes when we don't feel worthy and we don't feel able, that is only because of the grace of God that we can worship you in freedom and in truth. And so God, may we know that today. May you remind us of that today in intimate ways. We pray in Jesus' name.